0: Welcome back to Ghosts of Arlington, and thank you for joining me for episode 108 Counting Coup Part 2 Medicine Crow. Before we begin today, I have a quick programming note. I have decided to split what was originally going to be a single long conclusion to Joseph Medicine Crow's fascinating life story into two shorter episodes. This means that while this week and next week's episodes will likely be a bit shorter than usual... I will publish a new episode the Monday after Thanksgiving, a week I usually take off. However, after Thanksgiving, I will be traveling for work again, and beginning now, when I travel for work, it is going to cause me to miss two weeks of episodes instead of just one. That means I won't be putting out episodes the first two weeks in December because of work, And then I will be traveling back to Idaho for Christmas. I will try really hard to publish one episode in December, but no promises. The next six weeks are going to be pretty busy. But with that said, let's get back to our regularly scheduled programming. Last week I mentioned the origin of the National Native American Heritage Month, which has been celebrated every November here in the United States since 1990. I shared about the North American Plains Indians, how several of those tribes had a tradition of counting coup or literally touching the enemy on the battlefield, and then I talked specifically about the Absaluka, or Crow tribe, which Joseph Medicine Crow was born into in October 1913. Four days after he was born, he was given the name Winter Man by a visiting Sioux and was known as Winter, for short, for many years. When he was officially enrolled into the Crow tribe, he was given the legal name Joseph Medicine Crow. His father, Leo Medicine Crow, died in 1915 when he was 20 or 21 years old, six months before his son's second birthday. His mother, Amy Yellowtail, made sure young Joseph was raised in the most traditional way possible. She lived for 98 years and died in 1992. Joseph's paternal grandparents were Chief Medicine Crow and his wife Medicine Sheep. Chief Medicine Crow was revered as a great man with 22 war deeds to his credit. He was also a medicine man who many believed could see into the future. Last week I briefly mentioned Joseph's maternal grandfather Yellowtail. His maternal grandmother was Elizabeth Fraser. She was half Scot, a quarter French, and only a quarter Indian. She had red hair and blue eyes, but never learned to speak English. In Joseph's words... She was an Indian in every way except her appearance. Joseph spent much more time with his Yellowtail grandparents than his Medicine Crow grandparents, and remembers that for a time, Yellowtail's mother also lived with them. In his memoir, Counting Coo, Becoming a Crow Chief on the Reservation and Beyond, Joseph describes his great-grandmother, whose name was Bear that stays by the side of the river, as, quote, A real old-time Indian. She kept living in her teepee, even after the government built a log cabin for Grandpa Yellowtail. She wouldn't live in the house, even in wintertime. Eventually, she got really old and somebody, maybe her sons, built her a log cabin. It had a wood stove for heating and cooking, but no floor no ceiling, no windows. That's how she lived. That house was on the reservation near the town of Lodgegrass, Montana, so later, when Medicine Crow went to school in town, he often stayed with bear that stays by the side of the river. In the Crow tradition, there were other people Medicine Crow called grandparents as well, some more distantly related, and others not related at all, but still close to the family. Most grandparent-age folks during this time were pre-reservation Indians, so he got a good mix of both Western and traditional educations. Medicine Crow was raised during some of the most difficult times for the Crow Nation. Because of disease, the tribe was down to between 1,800 and 2,000 members in one Bureau of Indian Affairs Census. Hunger also took a toll on the population. Crows traditionally ate meat, but with the bison herds gone, smaller game like deer and antelope were nearly wiped out on the reservation. Often when there was no wild game available, people would subsist on berries gathered in the summer, or a few, like Grandmother Yellowtail, were good at growing potatoes and a few other things in personal gardens. Occasionally, someone would steal a cow from a local cattle baron. They didn't feel too bad about this, as the cattle barons paid next to nothing for the land their cattle grazed on. Despite the hardship, it was a good time to be a child on the reservation. When he wasn't attending the school that had been built near his great-grandmother's house, Medicine Crow was outside playing with the other children or swimming in the Little Horn River. When they got older, the kids would rope and break colts and yearlings in the hills. Crows were traditionally good at raising and racing horses, and men from the local community loved to bet on the kids' horse races. Medicine Crow was taught to race by his mother's adopted grandfather, One Star, who also happened to be a police officer for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. While One Star is a fitting name for a man who wore a gold star badge on his uniform, it seems like that was a happy circumstance rather than a source for that particular name. Medicine Crow started attending a Baptist-run school on the reservation when he was seven years old. To call it a school was a bit of a stretch, though. In his three years there, he learned next to nothing. One day, when he was ten years old, Grandfather One Star walked into the school, pulled him out, and then took him to what was commonly called the white man's school in town. That was the school by his great-grandmother's house. Medicine Crow was now at a place where he would actually learn things, but because he still couldn't read or write or even speak English at this time, he had to start over in first grade. But unlike the Baptist school, which seemed to have an ambivalent teacher, the teacher at the white man's school spent a lot of time helping him catch up. Before long, Medicine Crow was doing quite well in school. He also found out the real reason One Star pulled him out of the other school. He needed his adopted grandson to learn English because One Star needed an interpreter when dealing with white shopkeepers in town. Despite his success in school, there were still conflicts with the white students. The state of Montana had forced many of the schools to enroll Native students, and many white parents weren't too keen on the idea. As often happens, parents' prejudices trickled down to their children, and that, combined with the distrust of, and sometimes downright fear of, whites that many Natives had, conflict may have been inevitable. On his first day at the white man's school, Medicine Crow was seated in the very front of the class, right in front of a white girl who pulled out a safety pen and stabbed him in the back with it 40 or 50 times over the course of the day. Other times, Native children, who spoke Crow unless directly addressing a teacher, would ridicule their fellows if they saw one speaking English to a white kid at recess. They would say things like, Look at him trying to be a white man. As they got older, these conflicts grew worse. It got to the point that there was a fight every recess and sometimes after school and sometimes if an Indian was found in town after dark. Medicine Crow's paternal grandfather, Chief Medicine Crow, was one of about ten chiefs who lived in the area when he was young. All of these men at one point had been great warriors who had earned their position counting coup on the enemy, but after moving on to the reservation, they lost their authority and spent most of their time reminiscing with each other about the old days. Young Medicine Crow would often attend these gatherings with his grandfather. It was at one of these gatherings that he learned of his familial connection to the Battle of Little Bighorn. Last week, I named the crows who scouted for General Custer. White Swan, Goes Ahead, Curly, Harry Moccasin, and White Man Runs Him. White Man Runs Him was Medicine Crow's great-uncle, or in his own words, he was the brother of my grandmother. This made him, in the Indian way, my grandfather. Medicine Crow got to know all of these scouts when he was young, except for White Swan, who died before he was born, and Harry Moccasin, who died when he was still quite young. All these men talked of their time scouting for Custer's 7th Cavalry. Custer, known as Son of the Morning Star by the Crow and Yellow Hair by the Sioux and Cheyenne, met his fate at the Battle of Little Bighorn, but inadvertently saved the lives of all of his native scouts. The scouts had told Custer the combined Sioux and Cheyenne force was too large to defeat without reinforcements, who, by the way, were already en route, that fateful day, in June 1876. But the general did not heed their warning and continued to advance his troopers to their death. Just prior to arriving at the Sioux and Cheyenne camp, the Crow scouts removed their military uniforms and began donning their traditional clothing. Upon seeing this, Custer asked Mitch Buyer, his interpreter for the Crow scouts, what they were doing. When Buyer repeated the question to the scouts, goes ahead, pointed a finger at Custer and said in Crow, Tell this man he's crazy. He's no good. Tell him that in a very short time, we are all going to be killed. I intend to pass to the other side of camp, to the afterlife, dressed as a crow warrior, and not as a white man. As you might imagine, Custer didn't appreciate this answer and yelled something along the lines of, Tell those superstitious Indians to leave. I don't want the defeatist attitude around my soldiers. Their job was to find the Sioux, and they did that. We'll do the fighting if they are so afraid of the Sioux. According to White Man Runs Him, Boyer told the scouts, You are fortunate. He says you can go now. You have completed your work. Go now. Hurry. Don't stop. As for me, I cannot go. I am in the army and I must stay. The scouts took Buyer's advice and left. Buyer was killed with Custer. The Crow scouts survived. White Man Runs Him was the last surviving of Custer's Crow scouts. After he learned English, Medicine Crow would often interpret for his grandfather. Reporters were always coming by to talk with him, especially around the 50th anniversary of the battle in June 1936. There was a large celebration to commemorate the 50th, and Medicine Crow got to see many Sioux and Cheyenne warriors who fought at Little Bighorn perform victory dances. Medicine Crow said, That ceremony had a powerful impact on me, an Indian boy not yet in my teens. I felt tremendous pride that my own grandfathers had once been great warriors and chieftains. The memory of that moment has stayed with me the rest of my life. Later, as a soldier in World War II, I knew that I, too, must fight honorably and bravely like a Plains Indian warrior. In 1929, Medicine Crow finished elementary school in Lodgegrass while racial tensions were at their worst in the region, so very few Crow children attended Lodgegrass High School. Instead, they went to off-reservation boarding schools, which had improved greatly since the early days when they would do all they could to take Native children's culture and language from them. While not perfect, Medicine Crow says it was better than dealing with the white kids in public school. He was sick of fighting all the time and told his family he wanted to go away for school. The school he tried to get into in South Dakota, Flandro Indian School, was full up and with the first day of school rapidly approaching, he thought he was out of luck. That is until Rev. W. A. Petzoldt of the Baptist Mission at Lodgegrass heard of his plight and offered to help send him and more than 15 other Crow children to Baycone, a Baptist-supported Indian school in Oklahoma. Medicine Crow turned 16 a little over a month after he started 8th grade. Going to Baycone was a real eye-opener for me, he said. The students there were from 30 or 40 different Indian tribes across the country. Until then, my knowledge of Indians was only of the Cheyenne, Pygens, and Sioux who lived near us. It was meeting the kids from other tribes that got me interested in collecting Crow stories because the kids from the other tribes would ask me about my tribe. By then, my English was getting pretty good, but I still preferred speaking Crow when I could. Medicine Crow returned to Bacon the next year and kept going back. He graduated high school in 1934 and junior college in 1936. While there, he sang bass in a choir and toured with them through several states. In 1932, the group was invited to sing at the World's Fair in Chicago. In addition to singing, he learned to play the piano and the saxophone, and learned baseball and basketball. He boxed a little, but quit after his second fight, it sounds like he suffered from a concussion, and he enjoyed throwing the javelin for the track and field team. During his final year in high school and his two years in junior college, he spent his summers working at boys' camps in New Hampshire and New Jersey, where he taught Indian crafts and lore. In New Hampshire, he learned to paddle a canoe, which he had never seen before, and it was also at camp that he learned to shoot a bow and arrow. After the campers went to bed, he would slip over to the archery range and practice. After his first year at Baycone, Crow students began to drop out for one reason or another. By the time he graduated, Medicine Crow was the only crow still there, but he worked hard and made the Oklahoma High School Honor Roll every year. At Baycone Junior College, he majored in biology, botany, and geology, and finished near the top of his class. When he got back to the reservation, Reverend Petzold raised funds to send him to Linfield College in Oregon. Linfield was not easy, but he managed to graduate two years later in 1938. He was the first Crow man to graduate college. The first Crow woman, Joy Yellowtail, graduated from a California college the year before. After receiving his undergraduate degree, Medicine Crow became the first Crow to receive a graduate degree, when he graduated from the University of Southern California in 1939 with a Master's in Anthropology. His thesis, The Effects of European Cultural Contact Upon the Economic, Social, and Religious Life of the Crow Indians, has become a well-respected work about Crow culture. He began work toward a doctorate and by 1941 had completed the required coursework but did not complete his Ph.D. because the United States entered World War II. He spent the latter half of 1942 working in the naval shipyards in Bremerton, Washington. In 1943, he found himself at Fort Douglas, Utah, standing in a long line of inductees waiting for his physical examination. After my physical, I had to go into another room to be interviewed about my work experience so the Army could figure out the best way to use me. I entered the room and was amazed to see one of the officials interviewing the inductees was Jerry Nicholson, my roommate at Linfield College. We were so poor in those days that we had rented a small room and slept together in one bed. When he spotted me, he motioned me to follow him. We went into his office, he shut the door, and we had a good reunion. With your education, he told me, I can get you a commission. Medicine Crow turned down the offer, telling his friend that he didn't want to start out as an officer. I'm going to do like my grandfather Medicine Crow. My grandfather started his military career as a young man? worked his way up through the Crow warrior ranks, and became a great chief. I am going to follow in his footsteps. It was the biggest mistake I ever made, because the U.S. Army did not work on the principles of the Crow tribe. I entered the army as a private, and came out a private. I never got another chance to be an officer. In fact, at first, I wasn't even a combat soldier. The army assigned me to be a clerk, and that is how I spent my first couple of years on active duty. All that changed in the closing months of World War II. The army needed foot soldiers for the invasion of Germany, and I was one of those moved to the front lines. Here, finally, was my opportunity to be a warrior, to meet the enemy in combat. But, in truth, I knew little about being a warrior only the stories I had heard growing up. We're going to pause our story here today with Private Medicine Crow beginning his military service. Service that would bring him closer to his warrior ancestors in ways he never imagined. If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are pictures related to every episode on the website, www. Ghosts of Arlington Podcast.com. You can help others learn about the podcast by leaving a five star rating and review at Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.